0: Okay, so let's just recap. I know we, had a, we started and we stopped. This is a mimer called Shir Hamales, based on a verse from Tehillim which speaks about the Yidden coming back from their exile in Bavel. And it's based on Pashas Vayeshev and connected to the dreams of Yosef. We're trying to understand the connection between dreams and Galos, dreams and exile.
1: Which, which uh, Tehillim was it?
0: Remember. I do not remember. It should say here though. Let's see. Tehillim one twenty six, Shiramalis. It's the it's the paragraph that we say before we bench on Shabbos. One twenty six. So we last class we discussed what possibly could be the connections between a dream and exile. We brought up lots of um, different ideas, and we spoke about dreams in general. Thank you. Um, Ml. You. Thank you. Perfect. Okay, so we're on page three. On Whoa, wait, this is upsetting. Okay, fine. Yeah, we're on page three. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go into the Alter Rebbe's explanation for what is the connection between dreaming and exile. We defined a dream as two opposites being able to coexist at the same time without it even bothering you, right? That's what goes on in a dream. The reason for that is because our power of imagination is just running wild. Our discerning mind is not present and awake and aware enough to put a reality reality check onto our imagination and our imagination has this ability and this tendency to combine opposites as if they're one and if there's no problem for them to be working together even though it's physically impossible so the altar is going to say that that's the same thing with exile when we are in exile and again when we say exile we're not speaking specifically about this world we're speaking about this world in a state of exile we find ourselves asleep so in Hasidus, there's two main um, analogies that it uses for this exile state that our is in. One of them is sleeping or dreaming, right? That we're like sleepwalking when we're in exile. And the other one is that we're in a fetal, um, fetal state. Can you say that? Like an unborn state?
1: Yeah. Fetal. fetal state,
0: right? So either a sleeping state or a fetal state. Um, here we're going to generally be discussing the sleeping state, the difference if you if you come across this in Sichas in my mom one time it'll say, "Oh, exiles like this, one it will be exiles like this." When it describes Golos as being a fetal state, it's like talking about complete darkness. So exile as it includes suffering, okay um, where there's real darkness in exile, where there's real challenges, which is a side effect and a consequence of ex- exile. The reason for that is because a fetus is really not aware. Is like according to Hasidus, a fetus is not conscious until it's born. It has the value of it has the value of life 100%, but it's not considered conscious until it's born. So this unconscious state is an analogy for exile where we're just unconscious to godliness, but in like an extreme way of suffering. And then, um, I'll get you in a second. And then when we use a sleep-like state, it's more of just the general challenge of exile where we're just not aware, not necessarily including suffering. So when the altar is discussing Golis here, exile, he's not talking about suffering, which we know is a byproduct of Golis. If we weren't in Golis, we wouldn't also suffer. But there's a general um experience that we have in gallus which is called the sleep-like state which allows us to incorporate opposites together as if it's no problem and we'll see the opposites are our love for hashem and our love for ourselves as if they are the same thing which they're not Um, and this is the sleep-like state so when we're speaking about gallus in this manner in general it's important to remember that we're speaking about um the side effect of gallus which makes us not aware and not Truly aligned and what's the word like das, like knowledge knowledge and and aware aware and like integrated. What's the word like um, when somebody is the word is eluding me. Like if somebody is yashar, you say like there's inside and outside are matching, like integrity, integrity. integrity. There's like a lack of integrity that we have in Gaulas. And the reason for that is a sleep-like state. So that's the goddess that we're talking about, not necessarily suffering. And the truth is, you can be in exile, right? Which we all are, and not be suffering. Most of the time, some of the time, and you can say, wait, so maybe I'm not an exile anymore because I'm not suffering. And the, tr- the According to chassidahs, at least, just because you're not suffering doesn't mean you're not in exile because we're always, we have this shallow perspective of life. We don't have this integrity. And... Because of that, we're able to include two things together like a dream. So that's what the altar was going to say. Did you have a question?
1: Um, yeah. Uh, the, sorry, I don't know if it's relevant, but I'm really curious. How come we start to form consciousness when we're, like, I mean, two or three years old instead of, like, immediately when we're born, if the consciousness comes to the baby immediately after it's born? And also I was thinking that some babies in the, like, in the stomach can respond to, like, outside st- stimuli and like, right. um, the voices of people and, like, right. you know like hit the stomach wall and stuff like that. So, yeah. I mean, they seem to be have, having some kind of responsive right. consciousness to yeah. how they're similar. So it's like, how, how, do, how does that work?
0: Yeah, when when, when Hasidis like, explain certain physical things. It doesn't always fit with science. Let's yeah. put it that way. Um, so, yes, we know that babies can 100% respond when mm-hmm. they're in the womb. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, well, how do you define consciousness? The truth is, like, I don't know. Like, we could have this discussion, but I'm not knowledgeable enough to get into it. And it will definitely be distracting. But, like, I don't even... Like, I haven't thought deeply enough about this topic. That, But, but according to this, the idea is that there is some sort of awakening that happens upon leaving the birth canal and becoming born into the world that did not exist previously. Um, and that's why we call this time period the birth pangs of Mashiach. Have you heard that term? That we're in the birth, like the, the stage right before a child is born is labor, right? And so the idea is that our generation is in like the labor phase of exile where we're about to be born and become aware and our eyes opened to the era of Mashiach. And we know that that's also the most painful time of pregnancy is right before the baby's born. And therefore the most painful and difficult and dark time of exile is right now. So there's something about the idea that we're going to be like born, right? We're going to become aware and conscious in a way that we weren't before. Um, so yeah it's a good question and i don't know enough to even to be able to answer it properly um all right let's get inside and see how the altar describes this connection um the connection between dreaming and gallus and why the Yiddin, when they left gallus said Hayinu that we were dreaming so second last paragraph so too regarding the exile the kach you guys have the place yeah the kacha'inyan begolas. So the same idea is relevant when it comes to Golas. Nitzut elokus beneficia adam, the exile of the spark of godliness in the soul of a person. Shehuba bchinas shena, because our godly soul and our godly spark is in a state of sleeping. The histal chutamokin, and a state where the discerning mind has left. Yacholhu and therefore he's able, laharkiv based varim havchim. Two merge two opposite things so when a uh, massive not even side effect but rather my english today is like not 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 only my english all my words not like i have the hebrew word. Um, <laughs> um, so this is what happens when you don't sleep enough <laughs> okay. when when okay so i don't know what the word would be but we can even almost say the definition of galas okay To go so far as to say not only a side effect and a byproduct but the definition of galos is the sleep-like state and that means that our neshama in its purest form when it's able to express itself is in love with hashem constantly is united with hashem constantly doesn't feel the lack for anything doesn't feel split up and compartmentalized and this this part of me wants this and this part of me wants this it's completely whole and it's one with the truth, and it's in love with Hashem, right? That's the state of our neshama when it's able to express itself. And then the, Exactly. So when we say the gallus of the neshama, when the neshama comes into the body in a galas state, which means Hashem is hiding, what does it mean just Hashem is hiding? Our neshama is hiding because our neshama is one with Hashem. So if we would wake up in the morning and feel our neshama, we would feel Hashem. We would experience geula in this physical world so when we say that our neshama is sleeping when we say that we're in a sleep-like state we mean our neshama is not able to express itself it's not able to say this is correct this is incorrect now the truth is that it can but it's so 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 subtle and so quiet and so overpowered by its neighbor the animal soul that we we 99% 99% of the time don't hear it. And that's Golas. When you're not able to express yourself, when you're not able to have an input, when you're not able to be who you are, you're exiled, right? So it's the is exile to the will of the animal soul because the animal soul is much louder and more felt and more present and we're in tune with it and in touch with it from the second that we're born. And so when we say Golas, we're talking about our Neshamah and Golas, that our neshama, the truth of our Neshamah, the, the life that it lives so when we say it's sleeping, we mean that you're walking around, you're living your life, and you say, this is the example the altar Rabbah is going to bring. Okay, so I love God, I'm going to pray, I'm going to proclaim my love for God and the uni of, unity of God in Shema. I'm going to say there's nothing other than Hashem, nothing. And I believe that. And then I close the Siddha, or... I move on to the next paragraph and I lose concentration. That's more accurate for us. Um, And then we start thinking about our plans for the day. And, you know, I really need this new thing. I need to go shopping. I need to get this. I need And I, 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 which is the absolute opposite. Bless you. You okay? No, don't don't apologize. Which is the absolute opposite of the intention that we just had a moment ago. Right? So if we were awake, the Neshama would say, wait a second. That doesn't fit. That doesn't make sense. But these two things are opposites: pick one, choose one, live one way. But is asleep. So there's nothing monitoring this dream-like state where opposites are happening at the same time, and it's just <laughs> we're just living in this like these two worlds at the same time without even being bothered by it which is what happens in a dream so when we say the Nishama is sleeping the Nishama is not able to have an input and to be able to keep us on track and say these two things are opposites they don't go together pick one be like you know pick one and and have that integrity i guess it's called we were lacking that integrity and it's not because we're bad people. It's literally because Hashem put our neshama to sleep in the exile state. That's, that's not our fault. It's Hashem's fault. Um, it's our job to try and awaken the neshama as much as we can. Um, but the way of the world in Golis is that the neshama doesn't really have much of a say to be able to have this discerning mind. So the altar is going to bring an example here about davening and about then going off to make a living, which he says are two opposite things that cannot work together, but we convince ourselves that we can. <coughs> so, on the one hand, he can be the entire day, tarud, invested, occupied, with trade, with making a living. Okay, one second. Let me just see how this works here. Okay. Ish labitzo mikatehu. This one is involved in his, in his um, his field, his orchard. Zepon This one's involved in his olive tree business, and this one is involved in this. Um, you know, our heads get involved in the way that we make a living. Hagamba, But on the other hand, shabbat fila. When this person, who's involved all day in making a living, prays Ma'ora he awakens his love for Hashem. To the point that he desires to leave behind all of his garments, literally leave his body behind, which we call kloisa when you're so in love with God that you just want to leave behind all the limitations that keep you away from him. He wants to just be cleave and unified, one with Hashem. From the power of his contemplations in prayer, the Yechuda Ilah about the upper unity of Hashem, the Tata and the lower unity of Hashem, which we did speak about when we were learning about Baruch Hashem Kavod. We spoke about that Shema represents Yechuda Ilah, this upper unity. There is nothing other than Hashem, period. That's Yechuda Ilah. Tata is Hashem is the master over the world. And everything is ruled by Hashem. That's Yechudah Tata. So we have both of these contemplations when we daven, specifically in the Shema. And a person, if he really contemplates deeply enough, can arouse within him a real, true love for Hashem, Levada, for Hashem alone. Afapich. And despite these contemplations and this deep level that he's achieved during Shema, Acharat Vila, the moment he finishes davening, Cholefis voveris Saava, The love leaves and it switches so it doesn't it's not like now i don't feel love anymore but the love is redirected The he doesn't even notice that this is the opposite of what he just contemplated during prayer and he imagines in his heart he convinces himself that he is able to unite and to hold two opposite things at once as if they were one thing, or be'emet, but what's the truth? nefradim, mer'achokim zemizedi, are two opposite things. So, the altar here is describing, first of all, a very high level of somebody who experiences this exile, more even to the point of what we can say, like how a Be'nani experiences it, because a Be'nani experiences a real love of Hashem when he davens, almost like a tzaddik. Like, if you would see a bainani and a tzaddik davening, and look into their heart and see what's going on in their heart, you wouldn't know the difference when they're davening. There's no difference between a tzaddik and a benoni while they're davening. It's, the question is, when they close the siddha, where are they? Then you can look, which we can't, right? So we don't know. Um, but then if we would be able to peer into their heart and see what's going on, then we would see, oh, that's a tzaddik and that's a benoni. And the reason for that is because they close the siddha and that love for Hashem it has an impression on the knee. It definitely does, as we spoke about in the Sikha, we spoke about different levels of davening and the impression it has on you throughout the day. It leaves an impression and it gives him the power not to sin, but that love is no longer there in the same way. And therefore his Yitzhahara comes, etc. And then he starts to convince himself that he loves all these different things. The truth is, when we would speak about the level we're holding on, again, when we're davening, maybe we'll have a moment right? One moment, maybe a split second, maybe five minutes, where we truly feel connected in our davening, where we tr- truly feel overwhelmed and excited by the truth of Hashem and committed to serving Hashem with everything that we have, right? Maybe maybe it happens once a year on Yom Kippur for some people. Maybe it happens every day, a few moments. Maybe it happens once a week, right? Davening doesn't always mean, the fact that we're saying the words doesn't always mean we're having the ultimate intentions we need to have. But we do get these moments. We call them Yom Kippur moments, okay? And a Yom Kippur moment can happen, at any time. There's a story with um there was
1: Yeah. Ask, um those moments when you really really feel connected in love, can it happen in for example when you study or is yes. it the same type of or... It
0: can happen. It's it can happen at any moment. But we are for the time to work on cultivating that actively is during darkening because that's when we contemplate on the things that were promised, that if we contemplate on them enough, um, will, lead to, will, will lead to love. Although, there is this idea of bonanut of contemplation, which can happen from learning a mimer, which can happen from taking time off to just contemplate on certain ideas, and it can happen then as well. But, um, davening, another word for davening that Khazal use is shebelev, the service of the heart. It's the time when we, that we set aside to do it. And hopefully we'll have results, even if for a moment, even if it's once a week. Um, so this idea of a Yom Kippur moment, there was someone who came into after the Rebbitzin passed away. I think it was to cook food for for the Rebbe in his kitchen, and he was a chassid and he was like very stressed about it. And he burnt the food like twice, and then the third time he like made the food, and then um, and and then he related that just at a random point of that day, he had this literal Yom Kippur moment, this like tshuva moment, like just everything became clear. Like Hashem is the only thing, this is, like I'm committing my whole life to Hashem, passionate, excited, like just this ultimate like ne'ilo moment he had randomly on a weekday in the middle of the day. And then he realized that that was the exact time that the Rebbe ate his lunch meal that he had cooked for him. Um, it, like just at that moment. It's a very interesting it's a very interesting story in general, but, but the idea here is that like, yeah, you can just like be walking and living your life and have this inspirational moment. We're going to learn about that when we learn about Adam Kiyakriv, so, um in One or Two My Mom, we're going to learn about inspiration that comes from above, like that you didn't deserve versus inspiration that you cultivate on your own. But yeah, sometimes you can really in the middle of your day, set aside time and it can happen. Sometimes Hashem just gives it to you as a gift. Um, but even when that happens... And you're just convinced this is the way you're going to live for the rest of your life. And you're absolutely convinced in that moment. What happens an hour later, a day later, a week later, depending on how inspirational it actually was? Get distracted. Get distracted. So that's the word. That's the, that's the best word to describe the Godless that we're talking about here. Distraction. We are distracted. We're, we're not so convinced of one thing enough. We don't see it deeply enough that we're just going for it we are, I guess the word is also shallow. We experience things in a more shallow way. And because of that, on the one hand, we can get really, really excited about something for ourselves, about a new car or about a new whatever it is, or about passing a test, a driving test. And like that's, all your davening is going there, right? And like it's all, it's all about that. And then you can get really, really excited about God. And sometimes it happens one moment after the other. Sometimes it happens at the same time. And because we don't truly Experiences love for Hashem in a way that, like, penetrates and lasts. It can switch, and we get distracted very, very easily. And we have the story with Eliyahu Navi and the Baal that we mentioned when we were speaking about miracles. That Eliyahu, that at the time when Eliyahu was the prophet, the Yidden were serving this idol called the Baal, and they were also serving Hashem. Like they were going to Shul, and then they were going to the Baal. What do they call temples? I guess. What What do you call like those? Pl- the pagan like it's called a temple right they would literally they were doing both things which drove Eliyahu crazy obviously <laughs> when we look at that it looks like really strange because we don't have that desire for a desire that they did um, and he there's this whole showdown that Eliyahu has with the the servants of the Baal saying i'm going to prove to you that my god is wrong and there and then there's this famous line that he says to the jews it says why are you jumping on both sides choose one side even if you choose the ball like fine but like at least you've committed to something the fact that you're and it seems like such an extreme example like how can you go to shore and then pray to hashem proclaim that hashem is the only thing and then literally go down the road to the temple and give like food the Baal, there was like all these strange rituals Baal pa'ar it's like very strange, very pagan rituals that they would then literally go do with the Baal because they also believed in the Baal. It's like, sounds so extreme to us. But we do the same thing. Maybe not as extreme, not with the idols. Again, not because we're so special, but because Hashem literally took away the desire for idol worship from us. But we do do the same thing. Yes.
1: Um, uh, wasn't it so that King Ahab, his wife Isabel, she was a pagan worshiper, so therefore like he got a mm-hmm. to do too. And... They, like they learned from him, or like did the people like saw that the king okay, the king is like both Jew and him, right? To That's and the what world.
0: happened. That the kings, specifically, I think it was the kings of Yisrael because there was a split in the kingdom, started to serve idolatry and it started to impact all of the Jews. Yes, but some were like only idols and they denied Hashem, but like most Jews, they were just like, oh, well. We'll just do both. Hopefully, one of them will work, right? And the truth is that we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We say, "I'm going to dove into Hashem, and hopefully, he'll listen to me." And then I'm going to also not dive into another idol, but put my trust in something else. Exactly. We we very often. It's the most natural thing that, like, you know what? I'm going to hope for God, but I'm also going to put all my hope into something that is not acting God. We do that all the time. We can all think of examples for that. Um, and sometimes we forget even to put our trust in God at all. And we put fully our trust in, something, in some, something else. And the reason again for that is because if our neshama was in a ge'ula state, it would be so obvious to us what we want and what the truth is and that there's nothing other than Hashem and that we we have this burning love for Hashem. It would be so real for us because we would be awake, right? When we're awake, things are real. We know this is reality and this is just a dream. This is imagination that we would be able to actually hold on to that meditation throughout the whole day because we would see Hashem in our day. So it'd be obvious. It wouldn't, but because... We experience everything so, shallow, so shallowly. We experience a little tiny flame and a spark of a love for Hashem that is not so overpowering that our whole body just becomes transformed and knows like truly deeply that this is the truth. We just jump. We jump from this, we jump to that. The truth is we don't experience our love for ourselves so deeply that we're stuck only with that either. Sometimes we get betrayed by our love for ourselves. We say, that didn't really work, right? That's not really getting me where I need to go. Maybe I need to look for something else, which is a blessing. Because if, if, if our love for ourselves always just worked, then we wouldn't start looking for higher things. Nothing that we experience, we experience truly to its fullest depth. Right? And that's why we're distracted. We're distracted. And that is the side effect of exile. And that is why we call Gallus a dreamlike state. And so we could think of it as that we're hypocrites. But the altar is going to say that's absolutely not the case. Because a hypocrite, the Rebbe has a sicha on this member that I'm thinking to learn. I've never, I don't think I've ever learned them both at the same time. But, like, I think that we should learn the Sikh afterwards. Because the Rebbe speaks about this point of, like, a hypocrite. And, like, when you think of a hypocrite, let me see if I can explain this correctly, right? Like, let's say a rabbi, an example for a hypocrite, like, the rabbi gets up at the pulpit and starts telling everybody, like, you need to keep Shabbos, okay? He gets up, he's telling his whole congregation how important it is to keep Shabbos and then the next week, they find him driving somewhere, right? And not driving his wife to the hospital, driving somewhere. Um, That's called a hypocrite, right? When we say hypocrite, what we mean is that the first time that the rabbi got up there and he told everyone to keep Shabbos, he didn't mean it, right? That's what it is. He got up there and he said something passionately as if he believed it, but he didn't actually believe it. And that's a hypocrite. That's not what we're saying here. And that's what the altar is going to clarify in the next um, chapter. First, he's going to clarify something else, and then he's going to clarify. We don't mean to say that because you proclaimed your love for Hashem and felt a love for Hashem, and then you didn't actually act that out the rest of the day, that that makes you a hypocrite. Because you did mean that, and you did mean that at the same time, because that's exile. That you can mean this and mean that, and live this life and live that life at the same time, as if it's not a contradiction, because we're asleep.
1: Is this, um me, is this... Um Similar to that, you know, post Yom Kippur feeling. Like, post you know, Yom, the, Yom Kippur feeling. You know what I'm saying? Like, we did all this, where we've been so close to God, now what? Like, and then the next day, it just feels like a normal day. You
0: know? Yeah. Like, I feel like. Yeah, like, as powerful year, as Yom Kippur is, yeah. usually the next day, it's just always. The next day is never that powerful. Yeah.
1: And it's right. just like back to normal life. Back
0: to life. Back um, to the same same problems that we had yeah, before usually yeah, right like yeah magically
1: like yeah the spirit then the other thing i was gonna say do you think this is similar have you heard of a whale moment no oh, a, whale moment? a whale moment um like yeah a, a whale old. moment is like basically when you know how big whales are like they're huge and then there's like a billion of them i don't actually know how many there are in the world probably I don't, not a billion I don't know. but there's but a there's lot of so them. many of them and there's still so much room in the ocean for others and then there's still so much room for the land and then the people, like I'm saying, showing like basically how big the world is. Um, So that's like, what, and then like being like, well, like obviously someone didn't make this, like God made it, like Mm. not a person. Um, Or like my own one was like seeing Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. Like I was like, there's no way a person like Oh, so a whale
0: moment is like a moment where you realize. Yeah. We're like, this must be from someone. Yeah, like but then like, like always exactly. the next second you're just like moving on. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, So that's because we're in exile. So when the Yiddin lived in the time of the Dosh, which was not a time of exile. It was a time of Gola. Mm-hmm. It was not the ultimate Gola because it was temporary. And because there were other, you know, people died. And there were, there were the natural consequences of the fact that we're not in Gola yet, ultimate Gola. But... Their consciousness was a goal of consciousness, specifically in the first base of English. Second base of English was already much less. Um, So. I think I've brought this, you've probably heard of these examples, but um, my mom always used to, uh, does anyone here have a British parent? <laughs> my mom always used to say this, um, said there was a little girl and she had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. Anyway, so I always think of that when I think of this, that the Yiddin, <laughs> she always used to say it, like, and now Kayla has like a curl right here, and I always think of it all day, Um so when she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was hard. Which the truth is, that's children. <laughs> like, and that was the yidin in the time of the first place of English. They had this integrity. Because they did, they saw Hashem. They experienced their God. So they can go to school and become a Navi. Like, as I mentioned to you before. And so when they were good, they were amazing. But when they were bad, they were punished by death. Because how, if you have such clarity can use sin against God. And they still did. There were those who did. And so the punishment was like the ultimate extreme because they chose the the good right? Because they saw it and they chose it. But then they chose the bad. And so they were responsible for both of those things. Today we don't have anything like that. Death penalties and like we don't have that. And the reason is because we don't have that same expectation on us because we just don't have that integrity. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have that no not necessarily responsibility we don't have those same consequences um so yeah when the yidin lived in the time of the base they 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 saw the truth which enabled them to be consistent that's the word that we're just like not consistent Um, if they weren't consistent also, it wasn't like, oh, they got distracted. It was like, no, you chose this path and you're fully responsible for it. Today, we don't say that at all. We say, no, you you got distracted, right? You know this is the truth, but then this came and it was shiny and it was exciting and you got distracted because you weren't experiencing anything fully.
1: Mm. But it doesn't mean that you did not
0: have it. Exactly. It doesn't mean that that awakening that you had was not a real awakening and that it wasn't a real love for Hashem. And so the Rebbe in the Sicha, maybe I'll just do a spoiler That we'll see. Um, <laughs> the Rebbe in the Sicha there says that um, the truth is that anything bad in this world, anything that's against Hashem, is not ultimate truth. And anything that's not ultimate truth does not last forever. It, it lives and it dies. But anything that's truth, what is truth? Something that's connected with Hashem, it lives on forever. And so the bad things that we do We can almost like actually say the opposite when we do something bad it wasn't real because it doesn't last because anything that's not one with hashem and his truth dies and so if you look at the whole span of time our nasham is above time and space that negative thing we did it doesn't live on it doesn't have substance the good thing that we did was the ultimate truth and connected to hashem and it lives on forever so the rebbe's argument in this context is that actually the love that you felt for hashem and prayer that was real The love that you felt for yourself after prayer that actually wasn't even real that's what wasn't real we however think the opposite because what's more common our love for ourselves and so we say well if we're proclaiming this and then most of our days spent like this it must be that this isn't actually me that this love that i felt for a moment maybe once a week right that's not me the me that i associate with myself much more often is me and the Rebbe says no that's not that's not the case
1: isn't there a story of, like, some, maybe a chassid of the rebbe, but, like, def, I think so, and, like, um, he lived maybe, like, <coughs> in Manhattan or somewhere nearby, but not, like, Crown Heights, and, like, all day he would just wear, like, regular clothes or whatever, and every time, maybe it wasn't the rebbe, but, like, one of them, every time he visited his rebbe, he would wear, like, the full kapatza and everything, and then I think he just, he said, like, he felt like a faker but his friends teased him like you're such a fake like when you go in front of your rebbe, you you wear the full garb, and all day you you could not see him for months at a time and when you're not seeing him you're just wearing like regular clothes and so you're like tricking your rebbe. so then the next time he saw him he just wore like what he always wears and then um Rebbe was like why did you he asked him like why did he change or something and he was saying like um, I always, like, usually I change when I see it, I put on a capazza, so this time I didn't change. He would saying, no, why, like, are you really yourself when you're wearing your other clothes, or are you, like, for, like, months at a time, or are you really yourself whenever you visit me and you wear the full garb? Why did you change out in the, or something like like This that. whole
0: time you thought, uh, this whole time I thought that you were fooling the world, but yeah. now I see that you thought that you were fooling me. Yeah. Um, so, that wasn't, def- definitely wasn't with this rubber, but there's, there's, like, multiple opinions <laughs> with which Rebbe it was and if it was even Uh, with the Chabad Rebbe. But that's like that story. Are you guys familiar with that story? Have you had it before? Um, Did you hear it now? Are we following? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) Let me make sure you're listening to Sydney. That story is the ultimate... Good. That's That's the ultimate ultimate pinpoint of exactly what we're talking about here, yes. The Rebbe was saying, the whole time I thought that you were fooling everyone else even though it was majority of your day you were wearing, um, but now you're telling me, no, I was fooling you, right? That, that garb I was putting on wasn't really me. Um, yeah, that's like absolutely spot on. So the Rebbe, alter Rebbe here now is going to bring up a question on what he has just said. Because the example that the Ultra Rebbe used to illustrate this this, um, these two worlds that we're holding, these contradictions, is that on the one hand, we proclaim our love for Hashem in prayer, and on the other hand, we go and we work. Right? That's, that's what he says, that this person goes to his orchard, and this person goes to his olive tree, and then he goes and he davens, and he feels love for Hashem, and these two things don't go together. So then the, the altar says, wait, but aren't we actually supposed to work? <laughs> like how can you say that work is a contradiction to loving hashem right especially if you learn the altar of his teachings where he emphasizes again and again you need a you know you need to go and work and live in the world and not cut yourself off how can you say that these two things are a contradiction so we'll start um we'll start with this next idea it's just a short caveat where the ultra is explaining that actually working could either be the opposite of your love for Hashem that you felt, or it could be totally in line, and it depends. So, page 5. The love of Hashem and the love of physical needs and desires are two opposite feelings, yet we don't fully recognize the contrast between them, and we imagine that it makes perfect sense to feel love for Hashem during prayer, and right after prayer, to feel love for material matters. Ki hagam diksev but we know that it's written in the Torah, Sheish shonim tizra that for six years you need to go and work your field. This is from Pashas Bahar, where it teaches us the commandment for Shemitah, the seventh year we rest. Before Hashem doesn't just say, every seven years you need a rest. What does Hashem say? For six years you will work, and on the seventh year you will rest, which comes to mean that we have to work. Right? And there are those who actually include working as a, a commandment. That there, for six days you work and on the seventh day you rest, that's Shabbos. And for six years you work and on the seventh year you rest, that's Shmita. And the idea is that you have to work in order to have the rest. The work is part of the obligation of the rest. So the question then is, how can you say that going to work is the opposite and is it a contradiction to serving Hashem and to loving Hashem? We need to go and work. And even further, the Kenba Krishna, we see that when we... Proclaim the unity of Hashem in Shema. We say, <laughs> That you need to serve Hashem with all of your heart. And then we say, <laughs> And I will give you rain for your land. And you will go out and you will gather your grain. Which, within Shema, where we're talking about there's nothing other than Hashem, we're also talking about going out into our field and gathering grain and working. Right? That's work. And so, that's the question. How can we say that that's a contradiction if we have to go and work? Like halachically? And the answer is, This it all depends on how you're going about your work. K'yaduwa, as we know. That any aspect of this world Hashem. It has an opportunity for serving Hashem, right? As it says, for six years you will plow your field and you will sow your field and on the seventh year you will let it rest. This is the idea of the refinement we have to effect in the six years that we're working. And then the elevation that comes in the seventh year. Yeah, we didn't learn Mayim Rabim this year, did we? I think maybe we had one class on it. Yeah,
1: we talked about it like it's a spark, but it can't go out. We talked about with the waters of Noah.
0: Yes, like, with the waters of Noah and work and like the challenges of work. Yeah, And so, and then about rest as well, about the ark being raised up And the work that you do and the challenges raising you up. So it's the same idea with Shemitah and it's the same idea with Shabbos. That if you don't... Shabbos is a byproduct of the six days of the week. It's not like two separate things. Shabbos is taking everything you've done in the week. Spiritually, that means all of the refinement of God that you've done through the week. And it raises it up to a new level. To a level that maybe you couldn't have reached on your own. And then you can kind of bask and enjoy that work. So we know that if you're going about your work in this way, with this intention, I am re- finding the opportunity to refine the world and to elevate the world and to find God here, then this is clearly not a contradiction. K'moshen Isbar The <inaudible> achar, this is the answer to the question, this line here. achar kavana talev It depends on what the intention of the heart is. So if your intention in work is to go to work and to make a kiddush Hashem and to put on tefillin or to give Shabbos candles out or to, you know, make a dwelling place for Hashem in your work, then that is completely in line with the intentions that you had in your davening. But, the river finishes off here with a but, which will continue tomorrow, but majority of people, he says, don't go to work that way, right? Why? Again, because we're in Gaul, not because we're bad people. And so that's why we can say safely say that going to work and davening is usually a contradiction because when we go to work, we're going to work for ourselves. And when we're davening, we're proclaiming that we're not going to do anything other than serve Hashem. So we'll continue with this tomorrow. Okay?